Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Libraries podcast. My name is Dan and today I'm joined by Stefan and Tara Toppler from And Other Stories. And Other Stories is an award-winning Sheffield-based publisher of innovative contemporary writing from around the world. And they're currently celebrating their 10th birthday. We'll also hear from author and winner of the Northern Book Prize, Sammy Wright. His book, Fit, has been described as a cutting and compassionate peek behind the scenes of a social media Cinderella story. But it really is a must read. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stefan, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the 10th birthday of Under the Stories. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's uh, wow, 10 years, but it feels like maybe in publishing it's a uh, each year is like a dog's year, sort of seven years of normal life. It feels like it's 10 years. It's been a long 10 years. Well, tell us about that long 10 years. What's what's the um, the end of the story's story? You know, where, where did it come from? What were you aiming to do? Yeah. Well, I guess, um, say, about 12, 13 years ago, I was a translator. And as a freelance translator, I was knocking on the doors of publishers and I would bring them a book that was amazing. Uh, and they would, they would, for example, there was a Brazilian author, Reda Nassar, who was just, I, I heard about because I was researching a project on rural literature and he, and, and someone recommended him very, just incredibly powerful writing. And I took it to one of the more adventurous publishers that I knew at the time and they they liked it but they said oh but we couldn't publish it i mean and and reading between the lines it was that here was a guy who'd lived in brazil he didn't speak english he wasn't going to help with the promotion he probably wouldn't come and do you know he wasn't going to come and do tours or anything and so how are we gonna you know how are we gonna sell copies of this foreign writer even if it is a great book and and i you know and i sort of heard similar things from other people so it and someone at a big publisher said, oh, it's great. But, you know, without overheads, we just couldn't make the, the numbers work. And so it just sort of made me think, you know, well, what about if it was a side project and, and a bunch of translators got together and did something as a labor of love, really, on the side and weren't expecting it to pay for a big swanky office uh, on the Strand, which is where Penguin were at the time or, you know, or, or, or similar overheads. And so we got it going just very simply at the beginning, we were uh, I got it going. I got uh, I applied for, and the second time round, I got lucky with an arts council grant to give some money, which which enabled us to pay translators for the first books and buy rights to the first books, and to get a couple of people working with me. We were all very part time at the start, earning money with other things, mainly, and um, and then just we had a bit of luck. Deborah Levy's. So it wasn't just translations, I should say. It was always. We never wanted it to be just one thing. It's uh, about, you know, the foreign writers, I think, can bring, can show new interesting perspectives to people in the UK, to readers and writers, and UK writers want to be published alongside really good foreign writers. Um, and but so one of the first four books was a British writer, Deborah Levy, and her book Swimming Home got on the Booker shortlist, so that really gave us a bit of that was that was the luck we needed to um, to not go bankrupt in the first year. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like I really like the fact that you're kind of shamelessly committed to to quality, you know, the contemporary, and um, 
And I think, I mean, I think, I don't know if you put it this way, but it seems that you're trying to broaden people's reading horizons, if you like, which as a librarian or in libraries, that's the kind of thing we try and do all the time because we know there's there's a, a magic and power to that. You know, there are real benefits to people from stepping out of their reading comfort zone sometimes. And yeah, you guys seem to really push that. Well, I think, I think, I mean, people do, you know, one reason people go to books is to learn things. And I think, you know, you learn things in different ways from nonfiction than from fiction. But certainly in fiction, one thing that is, can be a really rewarding thing is that experience of other people's lives. And every time you read a book of fiction, you know, you, you're getting an experience of other people's lives. But sometimes if you're reading fiction from different places or from different or different communities in the UK or, or different um, people in, in other parts of the world, you, you know, you, you will learn a lot from that. And, um, and that is really enriching, isn't it, to, to see other ways that people live. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's we don't, I think as society, we don't give enough, uh, we don't respect the power of, of reading quality fiction as much as we should, really. Um, we do sort of see it as a little bit of an extra or something to do on holiday once a year when um, it just does us all a lot of good in many ways, I think, just to pick yeah. up a book. Absolutely. Um, tell us about your subscription system, because you do things slightly differently to, to you know, your, most publishers. We do. Well, we when we started, we knew that it was going to be um, financially a bit of a challenge doing quite a lot of translations, doing quite a lot of books that were maybe not going to be immediate um, big hits because they were doing really interesting interesting things and, and would need some time to take off with people and um and we so we did a year before we published anything we appealed for subscribers to come and help us and to basically a bit like with a magazine subscription uh you pay in advance you trust us to send you good books um you know six times a year and the you know and and that is really one of the things that's that's helped us to you know bankroll the the publishing uh we we sell books in the shops as well um and and it's it's the mixture of the direct subscribers and the and the the sales through the usual channels that really really make it make it work for us so you're a sheffield based publisher but you haven't always been um, been in sheffield so why the move up north well, uh, we we certainly know in Sheffield for a good long time. Um, one of my brothers has been here for a couple of decades. Uh, did that classic thing of coming for university and then never leaving. And so I, you know, I, I I got to know the town. And then when I met my wife Tara, who's also part of the the company, um, we we saw that. We saw sort of around about 2015 that in a few years we were going to have the opportunity to move, things were going to, uh, we were going to have that chance. And we wondered about where to go. And it was just, it was just, you know, for a few reasons, just clear we wanted to come here for the personal reasons of, you know, having family here. Um, and, and for, and just, and just loving the spirit of the town and the way it felt like, and also the, the way 
we were aware that a lot of publishing was in the southeast of England, London in particular, and we were just keen to be somewhere else where there was a lot of really interesting stories and great writers, but by by being in the north where there were less publishers of fiction, we had the chance to be on the lookout for those stories and find some really great writers who, um, yeah, who who maybe their books wouldn't have come out otherwise, or you know, who knows. But we certainly we just we're just really happy to be here and and uh, having already published a couple of Sheffield authors, we know we've got more Sheffield and South Yorkshire authors on the way uh, than Northern authors, as like Sammy Wright. This year's yeah, winner we'll from Sammy Wright in just a minute. Great, yeah. um, brilliant, brilliant. I remember well. I remember talking to you. I don't know a couple of years back now, and I think you were doing a, a local history course, some kind of Sheffield local history course. You were really getting into the, <laughs> the whole Sheffield thing, which was just lovely. Yeah, no, definitely. I have. I uh, I, I remember learning learning a word there from um, Brian Holmshaw, who was doing the course about Crozzle and what Crozzle is. I have no idea. And, Go on. <laughs> well, Crozzle's the the, uh, the the shiny sort of molten um, waste from the the furnaces that turns into this this rock that has like shiny bits of of rainbow color in it. Um, and uh, and as as we were digging up our, digging up the concrete in the garden, and uh, we, you know we, we were finding underneath it in the soil lots of bits of crozzle. So I've been collecting them, <laughs> and uh, maybe sending them on to, to people in letters as a little bit of Sheffield for them. There you go. It's an alternative to Henson's relish as the, the next <laughs> yeah, exactly. big export. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you're also now a contributor, a regular contributor to the Sheffield Telegraph. Ah, well, we have, we have, we are, we are, we're, we're helping to, we're, we're, we're collecting some good bits of books to, to send along. Yeah, we're, we're, um, we're, you know, the Sheffield Telegraph's a really, really great place to go for local, local news and culture. But um, we felt there was, there was room for, uh, for, for. Some more excerpts. So, we're, sorry, this is this is Rafa. He agrees very much about this. <laughs> There's a lot of great local writers and presses, and so we're 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 reaching out to people uh, to see what books are on the way or what events are on the way linked to books. And every fortnight, the Sheffield Telegraph has its book club, where a book is featured on a page. Um, and um, yeah, so you can read a, a section from a book that is either by published by Sheffield Press or written by a Sheffield author or by an author who's appearing maybe at off the shelf festival and uh, and see if you like it. And then, of course, there's there's libraries and local bookshops who, who might who might be able to get you a copy. Excellent. Check it out. Um, final question. Can I can I ask you know, what about the future? You've had 10 years. So, so what's next? Any big ambitions, or, or should we be looking? Are there any particular titles we ought to be looking for? Uh, well, Tara, Tara has just joined me. Welcome, Tara. <laughs> um, Tara, what do you think? What titles should we be looking out for? Stefan Tobler's Guide to Crozzle Collecting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like hardcore coated with mercury. That's what it looks like. If you if you come up with this 
horrible stuff in the garden that your husband insists on collecting in large buckets and then washing <laughs> painstakingly looking for the good bits that's that's cross off yeah yeah that's i recommend it's a hobby. great hobby <laughs> <laughs> well uh, we have we do have uh, since it's our 10th anniversary we've, we've got some we've got some we've got some big books this this season um yeah, moments we could i mean you're going to talk to sammy in a minute sammy Wright, author of fit and Northern book prize winner so um so he will he will talk about his own book which is which is really great to to be presenting that yeah. uh that's coming out now in october and then in november on my birthday yeah we have a book by mona arshi who's known already as a poet she won the forward prize for poetry and she has a first novel coming out with us called somebody loves you which is fantastic do you, do you want to say something about that tara yeah well mona started her career as a human rights lawyer and then she felt the call to poetry and now she felt the call I won't even say to fiction because it was a voice that just blossomed in her head when she started hearing this not in a not in a spooky way but a character emerged to her a way of speaking um, that was born partly of some of the reading that she'd done about uh, about trauma and how we often think about trauma as manifesting in, in cries of despair or screams or repressed rage, but it can sometimes also manifest as silence. And so she conceived this character, Ruby, who in response to her mother's mental illness and just a pressurized suburban atmosphere, uh, she's you know, one of the two quote unquote uh, Indian families on the street and things are quite tense. Um, she stops talking and she just decides that she would rather, she would rather live within her own world than then engage and she's she's quite canny she's realized at this very young age that words are one of the ways in which people get put into boxes where they don't want to be uh and so you have this wonderful novel in fragments these tiny little episodes that are beautifully balanced from start to finish they just crescendo and build in these wonderful ways where you see ruby snidely remarking on her sisters or her family or the people around her at school and there's this gorgeous fluctuation in age you're never sure if she sounds as wise as the hills sometimes and the next moment you realize that actually she's still a child um, and it's an incredibly winsome charismatic person that came to life in Mona's head and so she started writing out these little episodes and it soon became clear to her that she was actually writing her first novel even though she never really set out to do that I don't think uh, and it's very very beautiful and funny and poignant and um, yeah I think we'll bring through for lots of lots of people, um, particularly if you've ever had a family member who's mentally ill, I think it it touches on that very deftly. Well, I think just best of luck with uh, you know the the tenth birthday celebrations and and the, you know, the next ten years really. Um, but we only interview people on this podcast that we we like and we we like you guys. We like <laughs> what you do and what you stand for very much. So yeah, best of luck for the next ten years. Well, thanks, Dan. It feels like we've arrived now that we've been on the, the, the Sheffield Libraries podcast. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Sammy Wright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to begin by saying how much I enjoyed reading the book. I was one of those lucky ones that got to read it pre-publication and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it's I couldn't put it down. I'm not just saying that I genuinely couldn't put it down, which always feels like a, a real treat. Um, before I go off on one, though, and, and so you know, 
rave about the book. I thought it might be better if you actually tell us a bit about the book yourself and um, well, tell us about yourself and about the book. I suppose the two go together, really, because, um, you know, I, I'm a teacher. I've taught for 20 years. Um, but in the last seven years, I've I, I moved up from London to the northeast. Um, I live in Newcastle and I work in Sunderland. And I really saw a huge difference between the young people I taught in um, London and those that I, I met in Sunderland. Uh, and at the same time, my teaching was much more political because I was setting up a new sixth form, um, which had a kind of explicit aim to try and change the aspiration in Sunderland. And I also got involved in the Social Mobility Commission. So I was working you know, nationally, looking at issues of, of deprivation and, and disadvantage. So all of that together, you know, I've been writing anyway, but it, it kind of really fueled my desire to write something that that properly engaged with those questions of you know, difference between the North and the South, um, how it feels to be from some of the more marginalised corners of, of Britain. And hopefully that's what I've tried to capture in the book, you know, that sense of uh, of the kind of nitty gritty of, of the day to day feeling of being 17 and feeling like you're on the edge of things. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you, you don't pull any punches either. This is this is powerful, compelling reading. This is, is you know, fiction at its best. Um, it, I mean, it's been described as a peek behind the scenes of a social media Cinderella story. Were you were you trying to write something like a modern fairy tale? Because, well, it certainly doesn't contain any Prince Charmings or fairy godmothers. Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is yes. Uh, I'm a literature teacher, and as such, I kind of think a lot about story in my kind of day-to-day -day life. And what I've always found with writing is I'm very interested. You know, I, I like experimental fiction, but I like plot and story. I'm interested in it. And so I like playing with it. So the idea behind the fairy tale element was that I was throwing several fairy tales at a story and kind of seeing how they interacted. So even though it's, you know, it's been described as a Cinderella story, and that's maybe the main architecture behind it, it's also Hansel and Gretel, and it's also Beauty and the Beast. Um, and, and so I, there's a very kind of geeky current running underneath it, that if you are into, you know, Bruno, Be Bruno Bettelheim and, um, uh, you know, Vladimir Propp and these, these kind of narrative theorists, I like that stuff, and that's there. But very intentionally, it's only there as the architecture for me to hang the story on and sure. hopefully for the average reader it shouldn't really be part of the experience so i guess without giving away any spoilers should we speak briefly about the plot tell us what happens to rose so i mean the, the core is that you know rose and her brother aaron are, are lost children so they are they're kids who experience really really um difficult upbringings and they're in foster care at the start of the novel um and as such, they've, they've got that kind of detachment from the world around them. They're not part of, even in their, their fairly kind of dingy town, they're not even part of that scene. So um, the kind of motor of the plot is, uh, is a visitor from London um, who is a magazine editor, and she offers an opportunity to Rose to go to London for some work experience. And while she's down there, um, she's spotted and, and gains the possibility of working as a model. Um, and from there, you know, it starts to explore how, you know, the cost of opportunity, how opportunity doesn't just come and solve all your problems. There are other uh, 
um, prices that you have to pay along the way. And equally, helping someone isn't as simple as just handing them you know, the golden ticket and everything's fine. If you really want to help, if you really want to support, you need to um, listen to the nuance of their experience um, and understand that, that what might seem like a helping hand can equally be very, very damaging in the wrong circumstances. Sure. You work with young people every day. You mentioned that you're a teacher and you, you very quickly um, realize that you've captured all that pain and confusion and intensity of being just being 17. And that's before you get to the, um, the tough existence that these, these characters are living with all the, the added pressure of foster care and difficult childhood and all that sort of stuff. I, I wonder if in part, you know, it's, well, is being a teacher, does being a teacher provide a window into, into that world? Do you think you could have written this without being a teacher? Absolutely not. And I think that there's something really important here is I think that there's a lot of discussion in fiction nowadays about voices and experience and lived experience. And what I'm really aware of in this is that I'm not writing from my experience of being Rose. I'm writing from my experience of watching Rose. Sure. Obviously, Rose is not a real person and, and I would never base any characters on real students that I talk because it wouldn't be ethical. But but there is a sense that it comes from that experience of watching uh, from the outside. And I think that um, you know, there are other books that I've read uh, you know, recently, which I think do a wonderful job of capturing a different aspect of deprivation. So for example, Shaggy Bain, you know, a wonderful, wonderful book um, written with that very first-hand experience you know, again, not of the specific things, but of, of growing up in that time and that place. And I'm conscious I'm not doing that. And I'm offering something slightly different, which is the, the slightly distanced view um, and the kind of more general view of these young people. I suppose sometimes you need some distance to see the true, the true shape of something, though. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what I try and get, you know, there's a very conscious uh, effort on my part not to... Um, not to indulge in uh, the misery porn aspect of it, in that, yeah. that, you know, I don't want to be telling you all the nitty gritty of what's happened to Rose or to any of the other characters. I want to be showing you how they are, how they're behaving. I'm much more interested in the aftermath in terms of their behavior, because as a teacher, that's what you see. You know, you don't see the abuse or the deprivation and the neglect, but what you see is a kid coming in and you watch them and you go, why is it that that kid is behaving so oddly at lunch break? And then you figure out, oh, maybe it's because they haven't eaten enough for the last couple of days. I, I think that puzzle, that mystery comes through really strongly as well. And it makes it all the more compelling. It, that's what kind of drives you to keep turning those pages. You know? Yeah, a triumph really. Um, I was also wondering, you've got the insight into into the schools but what about the world of, of PR and, and modeling and London you said that you'd worked in London did you have any insight into that sort of world when you um, I'd love to claim I have an alternative career as a model but uh, <laughs> um, I worked in magazines for many years in London so um, you know it's not that uh, you know I didn't kind of grill her about things but you know when you come home every night and your wife says oh you know uh, x happened or y happened you just pick up the texture of it a little yeah. bit and uh, you know, one of the key scenes in the in the London part of the book is going to a premiere, 
And that's very much because we used to get the cast off tickets for the premieres. <laughs> and so we'd turn up as these kind of just ordinary folk at the edge of things. And, you know, half a mile down the red carpet would be Julia Roberts. <laughs> you were on the red carpet. On the red carpet. <laughs> um, brilliant. So we, we've not said yet, you, you've just won the Northern Book Prize. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. Um, Thank you. To me, this feels like a, a Northern book. Um, it's very much grounded in, in the landscape. Yes, Rose visits London. Yes, she visits the South. But it, it's grounded in the North. That's where the, the heart of the book is. Um, and the divide between the life that Rose experiences, I think, lives in the North and experiences in the South is stark. Um, I mean, is it fair? Is it fair for me to say it's a Northern book? and, and did you set out so to write a northern book? Yes, is a simple answer because uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, I I really had this very strong awareness of the contrast between my life in North London and you know the life I was seeing in Sunderland, and that's not to say that there's it's all about grimness there, but it's just that I think that you know being a teacher, being in schools, is a very privileged position because you are genuinely seeing a local community. You know, you're seeing everyone there. That's the nature of a comprehensive school. It's, it's, a, it's a snapshot. And so I felt like that gave me an insight that I wanted to try and replicate and share. But I wanted to do it from the point of view of, um, you know, one of those, uh, one of those maps where you, you, you flip the axis and the centre of it is the north and then London is the distant far place, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know what like for example one of the decisions on that is around accent so presumably all the kids have a northern accent but i didn't want to put any of that phonetically because no one in the north goes oh listen to my northern vowels uh, they just think that's that's just speaking isn't it yeah and she goes down to london and suddenly people notice she's got an accent and she's freaked out by this and equally she listens to these people with their their, their london voices and thinks that's a really weird way of saying things <laughs> so it's that kind of it's quite a conscious effort to centre it in the kind of experience of the kids who, when I talk to them, I feel they feel quite on the edge of stuff. So, sure. you know, centering the story around them. Though, of course, I should add, you'll, you'll notice from my voice, I'm not particularly northern. I'm, I'm from all over. I'm Edinburgh first. I grew up in Edinburgh, then I went down south, and then I came back to halfway, halfway in between the two poles. Um, <laughs> it's always interesting when you speak to someone that well a scott when they um they talk about places like sheffield and they don't really consider it to be in the north it's, hey, it's all relative it's the midlands <laughs> um don't say that next time you visit sheffield it's definitely not the midlands um <laughs> no, no. But you, you, this leads on quite nicely though to my, my next question the fact that you have experienced um you know different corners of, of the island i suppose um I mean, the book, the book is gritty and it, it's it's violent and it's raw, but it is tender and there is some hope in there as well, I think. And so I suppose it's quite a personal question, but does that reflect how you kind of see and feel about Britain right now? You know, Britain is, a, is a, to my mind, quite a, a strange place right at a crossroads. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, you know, I, as I said, I've been involved in in various political things to the social mobility commission over the last three years three years and that's just coming to an end now and it's, it's meant to have looked at a lot of stats and figures about where we are and it's pretty grim reading at times um and i do you know i also see things like the way um 
you know, intolerance and racism, I believe, is increasing. I see it in the classroom. I see some of the things kids say, you know, some of the areas I work have, have presence from the far right. There's a lot of stuff that really bothers me. But I also believe that one of the great privileges of being a teacher is that you're hanging around with people before they're wrecked. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're still savable. All the kids you deal with are savable. So you have to have that sense of hope. Um, and I think it's, you know, I remember talking to someone who worked in the police once, and I think it's the opposite for the police sometimes, because they all, they're always at the end of things where something's gone catastrophically wrong for someone. Whereas I know that a lot of the kids I teach, some of them might end up, you know, having pretty grim lives and things happening. But when I see them, I'm always seeing them from the perspective of thinking, yes, you know, we can fix this, we can get better. And so hopefully that comes across in the book, because if we didn't have that sense, I mean, God, I wouldn't even have bloody written the thing. <laughs> you know, it'd be too depressing. Thank goodness for that. And thank goodness that there are teachers who, uh, who, who believe that and feel that as well and want to yeah, achieve that. Um, Sammy, it's been great speaking to you. Best of luck with the book. It's out on the 21st of October, I believe. That's right, yeah. Good luck with it. Cheers. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Sheffield Libraries podcast. I hope you'll join us again.